You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. Father, thank you so much that we can be here today to, to see an example of how the gospel is continuing to bear fruit, um, not just in the first century AD, but here in 2023 in Adelaide, just up the road from where we are. And Father, I just lift up my brother Joel to you and his family and all those men and women who are going to be at the coalface doing the work of, of launching a new church, a new embassy of, of heaven there in O'Halloran Hill. And we, we ask that you would continue to guide them in every single step of the way, every decision that they make, Lord, that they would just be coming to you and, and, and hearing from you. Lord, that you would be providing all of their needs for, for, for people, for, uh, for finances, for equipment. Thank you that you've provided a building and a space to meet and a, just an open welcome, uh, uh, welcome door for them to come in and, and be there and to gather there. We just pray that the worship that happens in, the, in that space every single Sunday from February next year will be a beacon of light and hope to the, the surrounding neighborhoods that people would come and receive the life, uh, life-altering, world-altering message and hope of Jesus. Lord, that you would be saving your people and Lord, that we would be, a, yeah, that your glory would increase as a result of what Joel and his family and his team are doing there. Lord, we ask that you would watch over and protect his family. Lord, grow them, encourage them, strengthen them every single day as they lead up to planting. Lord, we ask that you be with Joel now as he brings the word of God to us. Lord, that you would open our ears to hear and help him to speak clearly the words of life. So we thank you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Joel, over to you. Thank you, and thank you, uh, all of you. Uh, it's so joyful to be here with you and to uh, open the Word with you. So why don't you grab your Bibles out and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, considering where you guys are at in, in looking at missions at the moment and then also where we're at in, in terms of planting, Tyler's asked me to come and share a little bit of the, the vision, um, not just about what we're doing, but why we should plant churches and why that is a beautifully missional, gospel-centered, New Testament vision uh, for mission. And so I, I just think Ephesians 1 helps us do that. Because what I want to do is not just give you a bit of like the, the process or, or what church planting is. Many of you are a part of a church plant, considering you're here. Um, although what I do want to give you is why. Why do we want to plant churches for the glory of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel? And to do that, I want to just point us to really what the church is. Because without understanding what the church is, what the people of God gathering in local contexts across our globe throughout history, what that local church is, we can't really get an understanding of why we should plant more. And so um, I want to look at this this morning for the sake of, of our hearts as we come and sit under God's Word. Because isn't it true that as Christians, when we take a look at the Christian landscape around us, or even we just take a look at our experience, whether we've been a Christian for 10 minutes or 10 years or 60 years, we all have different experiences or understandings of what church is and what church looks like and what should be done and what shouldn't be done. 
And even if we've been a part of one church for all of our Christian life, we can so narrow our focus that this is the only way things to be done, whether for good or for bad. I'm believing for good if you're here at City Light South. But what we want to constantly do is step back and see what God's Word teaches us about what it is to be the people of God, what it is to be a local church covenanting together for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel. So, Look with me at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. I do apologize. I'm reading from the ESV this morning, and I know you're a CSB family normally, but I put it up on the screen for you. I'm going from verse 3, which may be the last slide. I can't remember which way I put it. It says this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just going to pause right there. I'm going to explain as we go this morning, if that's okay. I want to ask the question who is the us here? When Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who is the us? Well, it's referred to obviously in who is writing. And if we look up in verse one, if you've got your Bible in front of you, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is the apostle Paul. Paul, who was a very staunch religious Jew, and he was persecuting, terrorizing the church up until the point when Christ rescued him and saved him from his sin and called him to be an apostle, right? And he now writes as one who has been given the authority to lay the foundation of the church, and he writes to, second part of verse 1, says, to the saints... Who are in Ephesus to the saints. Now, when we hear that word saints, some of us might have this idea of a saint being in sort of like the Roman Catholic sense, where a saint was someone who lived an exemplary life and did a certain amount of good things and then died, and only after their death are they recognized as a saint and therefore they have a certain role in worship. Although that's not a biblical definition of what a saint is. Biblically, a saint is, well, it actually says there in verse 1, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. A saint is someone who is living a life of faith, resting completely and entirely upon the grace of God for all of their life and all of their hope longing to cling to him through every season, someone who is faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible will call a saint. Irrespective of their, the life that they are living, if their lives are faithful in Christ Jesus and seeking to conform to his word and his will, they are declared as a saint. All right, so go with me back to verse 3 and 4 now. God the Father has blessed us, Paul, and the church in Ephesus, the saints who are in Ephesus. Paul here is speaking to a local church community, a church that is gathering for the glory of Christ. And because this is God's word, and it is authoritative and is sufficient for all of life and faith, both in Paul's day and in our day today, we can include ourselves in this story in the story of Christ gathering, redeeming his church, this local church here can be included in the us of verse 3 that will go all the way down to verse 14. But verse 4 says this, 
even as he chose us in him, that would be in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God the Father has chosen a people that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul, the speaker, proclaims to a local church that God has chosen them and that he has predestined them lovingly out of the love of his grand overflowing grace. God has chosen to unite them with his son that they might be holy and blameless before him. But not only that, you, you might have noticed the word there, adoption. God has chosen these people to be adopted as sons and daughters in his family. Now, we might look at that, and that, that's grand, right? That's grand that God would look forward and he would choose a people for himself to make sons and daughters. And, and we might look at these people and go, wow, these must be like got it together sort of people. The sort of people who are worthy, who are valuable, who are beautiful, who are living morally upright and, and splendid lives. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, it's not up on the screen, but if you've got your Bible, explains who these people were. And Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, there's that inclusive language, among whom we all once lived, we, myself included, Paul's saying, we all lived according to the passions of our flesh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So who are these people that God has looked forward and he has chosen to unite with his son and adopt into his family? Well, they're people who are dead in their trespasses and sins who are completely and only and entirely deserving of God's wrath because of their own personal rebellion against Him. Whether that be or, or because of their disbelief that God is God and that He alone is worthy of glory and worship and praise, all of humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul say in Romans. And in Romans 6.23, he says, and the wages of sin is death. Because to deny the one who is the giver of life is to choose the opposite, is to choose death apart from him. Now, these people that God has looked forward and chosen to adopt into his family are sinners deserving of death who are dead in their trespasses and sins, unable to come to God themselves. So go back with me into verse one, uh, chapter 1. sorry, In verse 7, it says, In Him, or in Christ, in other words, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. 
How? How has God taken sinners and made them saints? How has God taken those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and brought them into his family that they might live holy and blameless before him? Well, here we have it in verse 7. In Christ, we have redemption. We have been purchased at a price. What was the price? Well, he says, by his blood. By the death of Jesus, the sinless, holy Son of God who took upon flesh and lived a life that was completely obedient to the will of the Father, sinless and stainless. Yet he hung upon a Roman cross and he suffered a sinner's death in place of sinners. In place of sinners who trust wholeheartedly, repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And what's the result? Well, the second half of verse 7, the forgiveness of our trespasses the forgiveness of our sins. Because of Jesus dying in our place, every sinner who trusts in his death as sufficient, as enough, their sins are forgiven. Their sins are wiped clean. And now they are children of God, sinners, main saints. I I don't know your story. I don't know, you know how you look back on your past or even your present. I don't know how you consider yourself and your own standing before God, but if your faith is in Jesus, I can declare that you are forgiven. Irrespective of what you have done or how you were brought up or what has been done to you, if your faith is in Christ and His death in your place and His resurrection, then you are forgiven. You are loved You have been adopted into the family of God. You have been declared a son or a daughter. Why? According to the riches of His grace. I love that. According to the riches of His grace. See, we come to God so often and we go, look at all the stuff I've done. Do you, sure, Joel, thanks for rolling in this morning, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how unworthy I am. I, I don't. But I know that the riches of His grace are far more valuable than any debt that you have incurred for yourself. And Christ is able to pay that price. He has paid that price. According to the riches of the grace of God, verse 8, He now expounds on this beautiful picture, which He has lavished. He has poured out and He keeps pouring out to the point where we're drenched and then He keeps pouring out. He is lavished to overflowing. His grace is poured out upon us. Was it an accident? No, it was in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the glory of This is the beauty, the wonder, the majesty of God's grace to us. God has united us with His Son. He has forgiven us by His grace through the death of Jesus and His resurrection. And then He has sealed us by the Spirit, as He says down in verse 13, which I'll read out in just a moment. Now, you might ask, are we talking about church planting this morning? Yeah. Why talk about this in relation to the church? Well, because this is the church, a people who are sinners 
and who are in active rebellion against God that he has chosen and saved for himself. That he has brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, as First Peter will say. This is the church those that he is united with his son and sealed by his spirit. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, and so eloquently that I would hate to try and do any better, so I'll just read it. He says, Before the first star was kindled, before the first living creature began to sing the praise of its creator, he loved his church with an everlasting love. Did you notice that back in verse 4? Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world before the first star was breathed into being, before he brought the land from the seas and then he filled both with living creatures that would all exalt his name. Before any of that occurred, he chose sinners that he would make saints and unite with his son and make them sons and daughters in his family. And so that's why Spurgeon says, before then, He loved his church with an everlasting love. And he goes on, he says, He spied her in the glass of predestination, pictured her by his divine foreknowledge, and loved her with all his heart. And it was for this cause that God the Son left his Father and became one with her, that he might redeem her. It was for this cause that he went with her through this veil of tears, discharged her debts, and bore her sins in his own body Upon the tree. How beautiful is that? Now, why? Why does God do such a thing? Was, was God lonely? Did he have like a U-shaped hole in his heart that he needed to fill? Was God unsatisfied with life before things and so he thought, I'm going to make a people and go through this hole so, so that I can fill myself up? No. Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect community, perfect love before the foundation of the world. God was not unsatisfied, but instead, because of his overflowing love, he chooses to pour out his love upon sinners like like you and I. Not because he's unsatisfied, but for the glory of his name. Why does God redeem a people for himself? Well, it's for the glory of his name. You see, the church uh, is is a redeemed people that God has saved for his own glory. That he would be exalted. That he would be known as God above all else. Let me prove it to you from the text. If you've got your Bible, look down with me in in, in verse 6 of chapter 1. He talks about how we have been chosen and predestined for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And he says this, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul's doing two things here. He is praising God for his grace, which is glorious, but he is also recognizing that God's grace makes him glorious. Or in other words, he is glorified as a gracious God. God is glorified in redeeming his people for himself. He he says it again in verse 12. Or let me read from verse 11. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that 
people who hope in Jesus might be to the praise of the glory of God. He's not done. He keeps going. Verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Have you done that? Just pause there for a minute. In Him you also, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Have you believed in Jesus? Having heard the word of truth, the good news that Jesus died in your place, but then rose again to give a new life to you, have you believed that, that He is enough, that His life and His death and His new life is sufficient to make you right with God? Sorry, quick pause. Having believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What for? What ends again? To the praise of His glory. God has redeemed a people, a people for His own namesake, for His own glory, that He would be exalted, that His majesty would be put on, di on display. And In fact, you can follow this idea all throughout Scripture. I'll just point to one other scenario, and that is in the first grand salvation. That is in Exodus, when God rescues a people, His people, out of slavery, uh, out of slavery in Egypt. And if you go read that narrative, Yahweh says time and time and time again why He is doing that. And if you want to see it explicitly, you can go read chapter 9, verses 13 to 16. And God tells His people, and He tells Pharaoh, that He is rescuing a people for Himself for two reasons. The first reason is so that all the world would know that Yahweh is Lord, that Yahweh alone is God. And so that's why he pours out his judgment upon Egypt and all their false gods so that he would be exalted and proclaimed as the only God. So two reasons. Firstly, that the whole world would know that he alone is God. And then secondly, he redeems a people for himself that they may then live for his glory. See, God is glorified in the act of of salvation in pouring out his glorious grace. God is glorified as the Redeemer. But then he is also glorified in how those redeemed people live for his glory. And that is just the same for the church. God is most glorified as Savior. God is most glorified as Redeemer. And he does so as he saves sinners and declares them saints, that we may live holy and blameless before Him. And so He is then glorified as we live holy and blameless before Him. You see, we can talk about many things as it comes to the church, or church planting, or mission, as you're talking about the moment, or ministry, how we relate to one another as the people of God. We can talk about all the ins and outs of governance and preaching and community and small groups, all this stuff, and it's good stuff, and we should, but we have to first come back to the fact that the church are a redeemed people that are solely for the glory of Christ, solely for the glory of God through Christ. You know, I, I love church history when I get the time to dabble. <laughs> and I love hearing of the story of how the church went from this point with the, in the apostolic era to where we are today. 
But as we look at the story of the church in all its ups and downs and sideways and backwards and all sorts of stuff that has happened, what we are truly beholding is God sustaining and renewing and reforming and leading. Wow, this is getting lower. (laughs) Cheers. The history of the church is ultimately his story about how he is sustaining and preserving his people for one purpose, for his glory. That Christ would be glorified in his people. The church is, is for his glory. Now, if we were to step back for a moment and just think about as, as Christians... And if you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe someone dragged you here or you just walked in the wrong door, then, then we're so glad that you're here. And, and I would just urge you to, if you're seeking and, and, and discovering faith, then stay on that journey. Ask questions. Tyler will take all the hard ones. Otherwise, everyone else will, would love to answer as well. But, but it's our heart as Christians, that that you would come to know the love of Jesus and and the grace of God for you and the forgiveness for your life. But, But if you're a Christian this morning, then isn't it true, let me just throw something at you, but isn't it true that we long for a certain sort of community? We long for a a community where, where there's real fellowship, right? We long for a real community where, there's, where we are known by others and we can know others and we can weep with those who are weeping and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We long for that sort of close-knit, tied, um, tight community that dies to self and lives for the benefit of one another. We, we long to be a part of a community that's on mission, that isn't simply sending money abroad, though that is good, but is also on mission in local contexts, reaching community groups and neighbours with the gospel and the good news about Jesus, and a community where we encourage one another and pray for one another in doing that, right? Don't, isn't there something in us that goes, yes, I want that? We long for a community where we can trust our elders and where we can submit to the authoritative, faithful preaching of the Word of God. We want to be a part of a community where real discipleship is happening, where we're encouraging one another for the glory of Christ to submit to God's Word and where, where, um, where sin is confronted and where it's encouraged to live holy and blameless before the Lord. We, we want that sort of community where, where God is truly glorified and the gospel is proclaimed and we are growing in our Christian faith and sinners are coming to know their Saviour. Don't we want that? Well, can I propose to you that the only way that we work together to cultivate those sorts of things is by ensuring that the glory of God is the center of the solar system of our lives. Because as soon as anything else becomes the center, if it's our own glory or the glory of you know, a brand or, or whatever it might be, then we throw off the ability to live wholeheartedly for the glory of Christ and all of those things break away. Now, let me give you the example. The most obvious example is pride. Pride where we make church or community or faith more about us 
than we do about the glory of God. And as soon as we make pride, or in other words, we make our own glory the center of that solar system, then everything else that we long for, that we want to be orbiting, and we want to be experiencing as part of community, shoots off and finds its orbit around something else. Because the only way that we, that we face pride is we dwell in the gospel. We remember we are sinners that are saved by grace. For what? For the glory of God. And when we place the glory of God at the center, what happens? Well, we shed pride and we begin to take off the mask and instead be transparent with one another and share with what we're battling with so that we can invite people to speak into our world and to apply the gospel to us and to encourage us in our faith. When we, apply, when we live with the glory of God at the center of our world, no longer are we so concerned with how other people will view us, but we are propelled on mission to proclaim the good news to others because we are so enamored with the glory of Jesus and what he has done in saving us that we just can't help but spill over to those around us. When the glory of God is at the center of our solar system, then we just long to sit under his word and obey it and apply it to one another's lives and speak truth and love as a community of God's people, we, we should be considering in everything how we might glorify God, how we might seek less of ourselves so that there may be more of Christ. When we come and we gather as the people of God, we, we stop to think how I might receive and we instead think, how might I bless someone else today? How might I encourage or uplift or get around someone that's struggling? And what's that? Do you just think more selflessly? No, because you'll do that from a place of pride as well. <laughs> no, we think more and we center our lives on the glory of God. It's all for His glory. Now, how, how do we do that as, as the people of God? Well, well, firstly, we do that by being a loving family that... How do, sorry, how do we glorify God, I should say, as a redeemed people? We do so by being a loving family that live set apart for the glory of God. You know, local churches are made up of united believers who covenant with one another, who say, this is my family. This is the people of God that I am here to love and serve and build up. Ephesians chapter 4, I didn't put this on the screen, I apologize. But Paul then talks about, in the first half of Ephesians, he talked about everything that God has done and then in the second half, he talks about what we do as, as believers in response to that. And in verse 11 of chapter 4, it says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, so those in leadership in various different ways. I'm not going to delve into that this morning, but for a purpose. What's the purpose? Well, the purpose in verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Remember who the saints are? Not just the elite few, not just those who are running teams, but it's those who are faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, that's you, to equip you, the saints, sinners who've been declared saints and are living faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to equip you for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So you, as the church, are to be equipped to build up the body of Christ. Now, verse 15, he's going to give us one thing that we, or one way that we do that. I just want you to notice, when he talks about what it is to live as the people of God, here, Paul does not refer to, say, spiritual gifts, or talents that you can bring, or, or how you may be able to worship lead, or play an instrument, or serve on kids, though they are all beautiful and necessary things. Instead, he speaks to one thing. He says this in verse 15. How do we build up one another? Well, we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth of the gospel, of what God has called us to as the people of God, and we do so in love. We speak the truth in love. That's not a responsibility just for the person who is holding the microphone. That is the responsibility of every saint, of every Christian gathering together in a local church community. So he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, in whom the whole body being held and joined together by each joint with which it is equipped that makes itself grow, grow together up in love. Every part, not just a few people. You know, the church, the church is not a, a cruise ship. The church is not a cruise ship where a few people are doing some really important things and everyone else is sitting around the pool getting fat. The church is a battleship or a fishing trawler where every single person on that vessel has a unique and absolutely necessary role in building up or in fulfilling the task that is set before it. And those roles look all sorts of different, but they come together all for the glory of Christ, all for the glory of God as this ragtag bunch of people down at City Light South join together to proclaim the gospel and glorify the head of the church, who is Jesus. You know, there is a lie in, in Christian belief, a really bad lie, that growing in Christian community means that you get gradually stronger and more able to hold on to your faith yourself. You know, you start out as a little child on milks and then you grow up onto solids and eventually by the time you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you, you're holding on and, and you're just able to sort yourself out. That is a terrible truth, a terrible lie, I mean. <laughs> Christian maturity isn't found in becoming more and more independent. Christian maturity is growing in knowing and understanding your need to be dependent upon others. It's growing up in understanding that I actually need all the graces that God has given me in the church. I need this community. I, I need, as, as a pastor, I desperately need my community of faith. For what? For speaking the truth in love. 
for drawing me back and reminding me of the good news of the gospel that I'm justified by grace alone through faith in Jesus. And the only way that we get to Christian maturity is by stripping away pride and doing what? I've got one point today. Is, is placing the glory of God at the center of our lives. As soon as we think that we need to get to the finish line ourselves, we've failed and we will fall over. And it would only be by the grace of God that he picks us up and pulls us back into dependency. Christian maturity is becoming more and more aware of our need to depend upon the Spirit in our daily walk, upon His Word, of relying upon God our Father who holds us as His children, and then becoming dependent upon the community and the family of faith that God has saved us into for His glory. So firstly, we, we glorify God as we live dependent as a family living and loving, speaking the truth in love to one another. Secondly, we do so, and I will m mention church planting here, I promise. <laughs> we do so by living missionally driven lives, by proclaiming the good news that saves sinners and God makes them saints. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All because of his work, we are those things. And what's the, what's the purpose? Well, he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous life. You are saved, not just to sit, but you are saved to be on mission, to proclaim to proclaim the excellencies, here's another word for excellencies, the glory, the majesty, the wonder of Him who has saved you. It is being so filled up with joy because of what God has done for, for you, for me, that I just can't help but spill over with the good news of the gospel. You, you read this last week, but the Great Commission, Jesus gathers his disciples in Galilee and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples. How do we do that? Well, baptize and teach. We baptize them as they, through faith and repentance, accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and then we teach them. Just think about that for a moment. The disciples, they hear the Great Commission, they spend a bunch of time with Jesus, and then Jesus ascends, and he sends them into Jerusalem, and they wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And then we find in Acts 2, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit descends. Remember, they're still remembering the Great Commission, they didn't call it that. We do. <laughs> but they're still remembering that. And the Spirit descends. He fills them. And Peter stands up in the portico and he proclaims this good news to all those who are gathering around Jews, filling the city. And he says, you guys crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it says in Acts 2 that they're cut to the heart and they come to him. And they say, what, what do we do now? And Peter, he says, repent 
and be baptized. Remember, repent and be baptized. Remembering the Great Commission. And it says that that day, 3,000 souls are added. Here's the question. What are they added to? Well, as the story of Acts go on, we see that they are added to the church, to the people of God. And in fact, right there and then, we have the foundation, the planting of a church that happens in Jerusalem. The first church as people are baptized into a community for what purpose? That they may learn to obey all that Christ has commanded them. There is the outworking of the Great Commission. People are baptized and they join into a church community. That, that's, by the way, just like a New Testament vision for baptism. It's not that we baptize people and then we send them off to just walk around the wasteland of life hoping that they you know, follow Jesus. Baptism is always inclusion into a church community. It's baptism into the family of God that expresses itself in a, in a local church context. And, and this is what church planting is. It's the same then as it was today, is we seek to proclaim the gospel for what purpose? That Christ may be glorified as the one who saves sinners and joins them in with his people. all for the glory of Christ, so that they may learn to obey all that He has commanded and may then go on and live lives for His glory in everything that they do. And this is what it is to be a believer, is to live your life in response to the gospel, in response to all that God has done. And this is why I'm convicted and I'm certain that we need more gospel-centered churches. And I don't think what we're going to plan is, is the answer to that, but, but I do think that God is, is calling us and calling you as a church plant still. What are we, four years in? You're still a church plant. Is to live for the glory of Christ now as you respond to the good news of what God has done. Because, and this is why the, the gospel is a great... Uh, a love story, the first, biggest, grandest love story. I love how Spurgeon put it, God the Father looked through the glass of predestination and he chose for himself a people. He chose for himself a bride for his son. And then Christ the Son comes and dies for his rebellious bride. And, and he suffers in, his, in, in her place so that she might be forgiven and made clean. And the church, the bride of Christ, is being beautified, ready for the return of the bridegroom, Jesus. And the Bible ends with a great feast, and it's not any feast, it's a wedding feast. The wedding feast of the, of the Lamb, where God will, will come and be united with his bride as He is glorified as Saviour, and He is glorified in those that He has saved. Let me pray. But I would love just to urge you this morning, as we are considering all these things and what it is to be a church, what it is to be believers, may we ensure, may, may even you test your hearts this morning in, in a moment as, you, as we take communion, is, 
is what is at the center of the solar system of your soul? Is it the glory of God? Or is there something else that has taken residence in your heart? That you dwell on, that you long for, that you live for? Because whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, either it will crush you or you will crush it. And I promise you, you will not stand before God one day and say, hey, look at all the stuff I did and have a happy ending. The only way we stand before God and are saved is by saying, look what Jesus did for me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we love you and, and we just are so grateful for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. I thank you for all these beautiful people that you have called them, that they are here, not by accident. For those who are faithful, who are trusting in Jesus, I thank you that you have chosen them, you have redeemed them, and you have adopted them and forgiven them of their sins. God, may you give them such an assurance and may you cause them to test their hearts. Is your glory at the center of all that they are as people? And Lord, I do pray for anyone else that's, that's here, that's investigating faith, that's just seeking you, Father. May you reveal to them the glory of your Son and the redemption that is available for them, the grace so available and so lavished upon those who trust in Jesus in everything. God, we love you and, and we give you glory and we ask that you would conform our hearts into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.